everybody loves the Marcel Marceau dude and everybody wants to do the my hand is on a piece of glass I can find an invisible door and walk through it Hello, Michelle. Geordie, hello. What's happening in Gownland? Robeland. It's the recording robe. I'm back in the recording robe because <laughs> it's now a tradition. I guess. And you have run a little brush through that mop, haven't you? Oh, yeah, but I've still got the boof. Embrace the boof, Michelle. Hi, everybody out there. We are your weekly dose of comedy storytelling and it's eavesdropping the podcast and I'm Geordie and I'm Michelle I'm the one with the buff I'm the one without the buff today anyway there has been buffs in my life but just not at the moment and you're eavesdropping on us which makes you an eavesdropper we allow it we're allowing that yes we do yeah we don't mind please continue Yes, and thank you for eavesdropping on us. And thanks to all our Patreon supporters. We've had a few new ones drop in, which is wonderful. Oh, welcome. Welcome Welcome to our Patreon. There's some lovely things coming up in March. Yes, so thank you to all our lovely Patreon supporters. Very excited you're joining us over there. And also just wanted to remind everybody that... The way we get found is when you rate us. Oh, that's a good idea. Do rate. Mm. Rate in a nice way, though, please. Yeah, give us five. Don't give us a one. All the stars. All the stars. All the stars. But the thing is, too, apparently you need to write something Oh, as well. Even if you just write, great stuff, girls. Very good. Thanking you or whatever. Otherwise, if you just do five stars, they think you're a bot. You need to be a bit human. Greetings of the day. (laughs) Don't say that because that will make you sound like a Nigerian prince. No offence, but you know, scams. There was an episode about that. Indeed. So what's been happening, Geordie? Anything exciting? Nothing much, Michelle. As you can probably hear, I'm still a little bit under the weather. Oh, I do have something to say. I did a little research after our Valentine's Day episode two weeks ago. I got confused when I was talking about Claudius the Cruel and you said, oh, is that like I, Claudius? Baby eating monster. Which I haven't seen. It looks really good. It's got that that actor, Derek, what's his name? Derek Jacobi, who is a Shakespearean actor in it. Did you think it looked good? Because I linked that up on the show notes. I did. Did you? Turns out it's from the 70s. Yeah, it's from the 70s. Classic. Well, yes, but it looks like a play that's been filmed. Well, I like that. Oh, do you? I like that. Oh. Yes. I got confused with Up Pompeii starring Frankie Howard with his catchline, Titter Ye Not, oh, God. and others. <laughs> it was a comedy based in, obviously, Pompeii just before the volcano. I seem to remember it from my childhood. I certainly don't remember I, Claudius, from my childhood. Thank God, that would be scarring. No, that would be scarring. It was quite shocking at the time. I mean, I think they really did rip an unborn baby out of someone's stomach. Ew! Yeah, it was very intense at the time. Well, did you see that? Where did you find that fact Oh, out? no, I think it was one of those things everyone talked about. Jen it. was telling you. Yeah, oh, Jen. Jen watched Flowers in the Attic. Jen was onto all the stuff. Really harsh <laughs> stuff. She likes it rough. <laughs> Sorry, Jen. Geordie. Well, she sat quite happily through all those dodgy scenes in Saltburn. Oh, yeah, they didn't even touch the sides. But speaking of films and scarring children, I had a conversation with my family last night. We're working through this film list that 
my friend and neighbour Rich passed on from his teen, who's a bit older than my teen. And I'm just wondering, as you know, I, I allowed my daughter to watch and son to watch Sixth Sense, which I think is okay. But what else is there? Something that's going to appeal to my daughter's sense of gory because she's just done all the screen films, which is horrific. Yeah. And so I'm trying to find another alternative, really. I thought The Others starring Nicole Kidman. It's spooky. I haven't seen it. I like things with a twist as well. There's a twist. Okay. I don't have any recs for you. Can't think of any that are suitable for children. <laughs> I thought if they liked The Sixth Sense, they could now watch Signs, which is the only other good film from M. Night Shyamalan. But it's actually really scary. Right. Because I was thinking more 80s classics. Like? Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Well, we did Breakfast Club and it didn't stand the test of time. It was a little dull. Was it? Sixteen Candles? No, that's going to be even more dull, I think. You think? think? I don't know. Um, Some things are of a time, aren't they? They don't travel well. I did watch Stand By Me, which is one of those classics, coming of age films. a good one. A little slow. Ah, see, if it's too slow, I'll lose the younger audience, my children, basically. So I thought... Kill Bill, maybe? Are you fucking joking for your under-16s? Yeah. No? Oh, no. Okay. No, no, they need to be a little older before they watch that, I think. Dusk Till Dawn. I mean, I'm telling you, my children love gore. Yes, but Kill Bill, from what I remember, there was a really shocking scene. And maybe I'm getting my Tarantinos mixed up. Is it the Vaseline in the beginning when she's in a coma? Yes. Yes. Well, that was the one scene that my eldest child said, perhaps not because of that, but maybe they won't notice the Vaseline and and won't know what it's for. I'm sorry, but it's actually very graphic. This nurse is raping a coma victim. Yeah, no, maybe we don't show that. I think that's a little much. Okay. Right. I can't remember all the details. (laughs) So that's why. Forgive me, people. And don't judge me. Awkward. Ox. Okay, two things have happened this week that have shone a light on the good and the not so good of the community. Let me explain. First of all, my husband dropped his phone, not just in the supermarket, but on the ground outside it. Because we get these electric bikes and you have to flash it. You have to take a picture of it when you've parked it. And he somehow just left his phone lying on the ground. But we didn't know that. Right. By the time we realised it was gone... We had called it a few times and then it went dead. And I just assumed it's in the house. It's always in the house. But then I went upstairs to get ready for bed and my phone started blowing up because somebody who found it actually on the same street as us posted it on one of those Facebook community groups. And okay, because there's a picture of us on our wedding day and our children. So many people recognized me and (laughs) and everybody calling me and saying, You've lost your phone, you nana, all this kind of thing. And eventually we found it with some really random people calling me, some old people from the past, some good friends from the present. Everybody got in touch and it was really heartwarming to see the community come together and help my husband find his phone. Thank you. That's wonderful. What's the not so good bit? The next night, the guinea pig got away again in the night. That's last night. He went missing. Couldn't find him. Shit. Yeah. And I didn't want to be judged because my husband does allow the guinea pig to have a little free roam every now and again, but they always find each other in the end before the fox finds him, apart from once, but he was all right. And we looked everywhere. Six people were looking everywhere with bright torches. 
And then my oh eldest God. son said, why not post it on one of the groups? Because maybe he's gotten through a hole in the fence and he's gone through to a neighbor. And I was like, okay, I'll just say, just in case you see a little rustling in your garden, it might be my guinea pig. But people love animals so much, you see, that they freak out. Yeah. And they say things like that. Guinea pig's not going to last very long out there, which was shocking enough when you're worried about a guinea pig lost in your garden with a fox roaming. Luckily enough, we did find him in the end. I got a bit snarky on the WhatsApp group. But in the end, it was all happy days and they found each other, my husband and his guinea pig. I was thinking that you were getting some poor parenting jabs for being a a poor guinea pig parent yeah it felt like that maybe I was just being a little defensive but it wasn't in the end it was all good yeah well okay the guinea pigs are the dangers of the internet people it's all I can say and the dangers of letting a guinea pig just roam free in the garden at dusk yes don't do that husband (laughs) so basically we've got a guinea pig in the room not a poltergeist for this episode this episode yeah great Can't wait to hear from you, Ray. Passed out with his eyes open. I hope that doesn't mean he's dead. Oh, stop! Ray! Ray! Oh, my God. What? Is he alive? Oh, Geordie, don't. I think he is moving. Hello. We can't have a death on pod. No, he's fine. Okay. (laughs) I'm just very high alert at the moment regarding the pig. I mean, I do love him. He's not my pet. I care about him, but he's annoying. Yeah, I mean, I've got this fake cat in and out. She's here right now. In case you hear some rustling okay. from the uh, stolen cat. Anywho, okay, moving forward. Moving right along. Have you got anything to update us with before we continue with this week's episode, Michelle? No, but I will say, awkward segue, we have been talking about classic films. Yes. Classic actors. Yes. I've got one for you today. Just one? Well, by default, two. I thought there was plenty because I've got a ton of them coming up myself. Today, I am looking at... One of the biggest child stars of the 80s. I gave you a little hint before. Yes. It's only one. It's one of the Corys. The Corys. Which one? (laughs) (laughs) Corey Hayes. Anyone who's watched The Goonies will know what we're talking about. Anyone who hasn't, born after 1980, may not know. Well, to be fair, Corey Haim was not in The Goonies. It was Corey Feldman. Right. Which one's which? Okay, so for anyone who even remembers the two Corys and get them mixed up. Corey Haim was the Lost blonde, blue-eyed one. Blonde? I thought they were both brown-haired. It's light, sandy, blonde. Much blonder when he was younger. And Corey Feldman was the dark-haired, maybe not so hot one. I agree with that. So is that why you were watching Stand By Me? Are they both in that and River Phoenix? I was watching Stand By Me because... I was doing some research for future episode on River Phoenix and Corey Feldman was in that, not Corey Haim, Feldman, the okay. dark haired, not hot one. So hot. Yeah, I'm sure he's loving that description. He's still alive, isn't he? Yes, Feldman is still alive yes. and I'm telling you, the looks went downhill. <laughs> <laughs> These child stars, you know, they're gorgeous when they're young. They're not late bloomers. They're early bloomers. Depends how much money you make and how much you can enhance your looks, I suppose. Yes and no. I think you just got it or you don't. Okay. But look, going back to the two Corys, they starred in loads of hit movies separately and together, including, as you mentioned, 
iconic horror film from the 80s, Lost The Boys. Lost Boys. They were in that together, weren't they? They were bezies. Yes. And comedy License to Drive with oh. Heather Graham. Didn't see that. It was huge at the time. <laughs> it was one of those films that the critics panned it. It's not for the critics. It's for the kids. And the kids loved it. And like so many child actors, Corey Haim lost his way, was pulled into a life of addiction, mm. drugs, that basically saw his career go down the toilet. It's quite tragic, isn't it? Yeah, his life did end in tragic circumstances. So spoiler, if you did not know, Corey Haim was dead. I'm going to give you a few Corey facts on Corey Haim. Born December 23, 1971 in Toronto. Canadian. I did not know he was Canadian. I always thought he was just American. And another fact I did not know, he's Jewish. Yeah. And his Hebrew name was Rechessel. Yehuda. Well, I imagine because Chaim is a Jewish name, isn't it? Yeah. Chaim. I guess when you're a kid, you just think it's Haim. Yeah. Like, came. I don't know. Anyway. What? According to his mum, Judy said, Corey was a shy kid. And to help him overcome his shyness, she did what any good mum would do. Drama classes. Yeah. But, weirdly, she enrolled him in mime, Geordie. Oh. Who the fuck would enroll their kid in mime. Well, in those days, I mean, he is roughly our generation, let's just say. Mime was big as school children. <laughs> I remember Marcel Musso, those little Piero dolls. Well, I was going to say a no one likes a fucking Marcel Musso dude. Doing all those hands and pretending. Everybody loves the Marcel Marceau dude. No one loves Everybody the wants Marcel to do Marceau. the, my hand is on a piece of glass. I can find an invisible door and walk through it. Everybody fucking loves that, Michelle. I beg to differ. That's point of contention. What about the one where he's running against the wind? That's a good one. <laughs> I hate that shit. I like to do, I'm going down an escalator on the other side of a window. Oh, I do that all the time to Andreas, actually. If he's on a train and I'm like going down, it always gets a smile. The reluctant smile. Then we have tears because we're leaving each other. <laughs> but also too, Jordi, how the fuck is mime going to help you overcome shyness? It's, you know, a different way of expressing yourself. If you can't find your voice, it makes sense to me. All right. Shut me down. No, I haven't shut you down exactly. I'm just seeing it from the other side. Okay, well done. All right. So we shouldn't we shouldn't hate Judy for that. There's more things yes. we're not going to like Judy for. Oh. Yeah. Soz Jude. Soz Jude. Corey did not set out to have an acting career. And instead, he was actually spotted when he went with his sister, Carrie, to an audition. And if you were Carrie, you'd be fucking pissed off because you'd How be like, annoying. this is my thing. Piss exactly. off. Exactly. My stupid, annoying little brother. I mean, that happened to me, actually, Michelle. What? Yes, there was a film that was made in my hometown with actor of the day, John Hargreaves from Australia. Okay. And I was in the drama group, as you may know. I was in the local amateur theatre group. I was the youngest member. Amdram. Amdram. I was, you know... Absolutely smashing it at this point. I was about 15. Mm. And what was the oh, film? The guy who played Alf in Home and Away. Oh. He was the father of three children. Everybody had to have a 50s look about them. I turned up to audition. Unfortunately, I was going through my goth stage, so I had black hair mm. and it was shaved on one side. So I didn't get a part. Everybody in the fucking town got a part as an extra. Because it was all being filmed in Durris and all around where I grew up. So a lot of my friends were in this bloody film. Guess who got a non-speaking but close-ups and a major part? 
my stupid little brother. I bet he would have been brilliant, actually. I can imagine he would have been really good. <laughs> he was the <laughs> eldest of the three sons of Elf. It was called, what was it called? A Place at the Coast. It's going to say not an Australian classic, but we could look it up on IMDb. Maybe I'll see if Shelley Show Notes can link that up. Yeah, poor old Carrie Haim. She didn't get the roles, but her brother, who was just hanging around, got roles he didn't even audition for. Pretty soon, 1981, age of 10, he was doing commercials and then went on to his first TV role as Larry in the Canadian children's educational comedy TV show, The Edison Twins. Never heard of it. 84, he got his first proper role in a proper film called Firstborn as a kid whose violent stepdad is tearing his family apart. Oh, God. The violent stepdad was played by an actor called Peter Weller. I don't know who he is. Robocop. Is that who he is? It could be, yes. Uh, Or Terminator or something. No, Robocop. And look, Corey, at the end of a scene that they'd done together on the first day of shooting, went up to him and was like, hey, man, you know, good job, good scene. Peter Weller fucking beat Corey Haim up. What? Threw him against the wall and said, don't ever speak to me again after a take. Oh, my God. Three assistants had to pull this guy off Corey Haim. How old was Corey? The kid is 10. He's 10. Oh, my fucking God. That's disgusting. It's fucking assault. It's fucked. And Corey later admitted that he was terrified by the experience. And afterwards, Peter Weller kind of went, oh, yeah, sorry. I was in character doing method acting. What a dick. Pretty scarring. It's your first big That's film. shameful. And you get the shit beaten out of you. More than that, age 10, this is, yeah. at the rap party for the movie, Corey says he remembers seeing his mum and dad getting flirty and dirty with other people at the party. Oh. Dancing with other people, his mum's probably fucking grinding on some Ew. dude from the crew. I don't know. Freaked him out. He was crying. Oh. And his two co-stars, who were Sarah Jessica Parker and Robert Downey Jr., who were going out at the time, they kind of looked after him. He's crying, seeing his parents, like, being all flirty with other people. And then Robert Downey Jr. said, forget this shit. You're coming to live with me. Wow. Which is nice, but... Except for his drug problems. Exactly. Yeah. And apparently he did for a little bit. And it turns out the reason his parents were acting like absolute shits at his first movie rap party, was that they were getting a divorce but hadn't bothered to tell him. So poor little 10-year-old Corey, beaten up, sees his parents. Like, it's not a good start. But look, despite all this, Corey Haim was hot shit. And he got loads of child actor roles in movies, including some 1985 film called Secret Admirer, which had Thomas C. Howell in it. Oh, The Outsider's gorgeous. I loved it, that film and him. Murphy's Romance that had Sally Field in it. Uh-huh. And then he got a lead role in a Stephen King horror called Silver Bullet. He started winning awards, Ooh. getting noticed. The roles were coming in thick and fast. Wow. Thing is, Corey Haim's dad was his manager. Uh-oh. Yeah, exactly. Big fucking uh-oh. He kind of fucked up his son's career because dude's not a manager. He's no. a dad. Yeah. So first thing he fucked up. He turned down the role of Charlie Fox in The Mosquito Coast. Oh, okay. Which was then given to up-and-coming child actor, exactly, River Phoenix. Now, like I said before, pinning that for a future episode. That film was directed by Aussie legend Peter Weir. Yeah. 
Picnic at Hanging Rock. Yes. Gallipoli. Dead Poet Society. Truman sure. Show. Yep. Mosquito Coast has Harrison Ford and Helen Mirren in Massive. it. Massive. Yeah, I know. This film put River Phoenix on the map. So, nice one, Dad. You messed that up for Corey Haim. But he got Lost Boys at some point. That's good. Yeah, but another thing his dad turned down was River Phoenix's character in Stand By Me, which we oh, just no. talked about. He actually got the part. He had the part and his dad oh. said, no, he's going to do a film called Lucas. And look, it's actually heartbreaking to think because Corey Haim's career is a bit of a joke. But mm. if only his dad had had the instinct to say yes to the right movies, he could have been in some of the most iconic films of the last century. Right. And things maybe could have gone differently. But I guess that said, didn't go so well for River Phoenix, you know, who got those parts. Yeah. But look... His success did come and his big break did come in 86 when he starred with some girl called Kerry Green, don't know her, Charlie Sheen and Winona Ryder in that film Lucas that I just mentioned. He played Lucas. I don't know the film, but apparently it is a coming of age story about an uncool kid who falls in love with the popular cheerleader girl. So after Lucas, Corey Haim moves to LA, stars in some shit TV series called Roomies. He's 16 at this point. And then in 1987, everything changes for him when he plays Sam Emerson, teenage vampire hunter in Joel Schumacher's The Lost Boys. Yeah, great film. I might pop that on the list for the kids. Yeah, see if it holds up because I haven't rewatched that. Jason Patrick, Kiefer Sutherland, Jamie Gertz, Corey Feldman. Yeah. All of them became household names after that film. And that's when the whole Two Corys idea was born. Right. And it is a classic. Just like that, overnight, these two Corys became the highest paying teen actors and stars of the 80s. Uh-huh. Then came License to Drive, which again starred the two Corys and Heather Graham. Corey Haim plays the lead role of Les, who can't get the girls because he doesn't have a car. Right. Basic premise, right? <laughs> And apparently on the set, the two Corys got up to loads of naughty stuff, you know, lots of drugs. This really was the peak of Corey Haim's success. But with all the drugs and other fucked up shit going on, it actually was the beginning of the downward spiral for him. And in fact, he did say later in life that License to Drive was his, quote, breaking point for becoming addicted to drugs. After doing some crap films and getting more and more into drugs... He went into rehab in 1989. He's 17. Right. That's so young. Yeah. And from then, his career just nosedived, Geordie. So in 1990, he co-starred with Patricia Arquette in a sci-fi film called Prayer of the Roller Boys. Crap. Hmm. His fans started to lose interest. He just started desperately taking any roles he could just to get money. And most of these films were straight-to-video movies. And by 1991, at age 19, his career was fucked. Oh dear. And he was basically known in the industry as an unreliable addict. And he was virtually unemployable. Then in 1992, he did an erotic thriller called Blown Away with his then-girlfriend, Nicole Eggert. It sounds terrible. Who basically, and the reason I bring this shit film up is because she said later on the Blown Away set that he had onset doctors who would just give him loads of legal drugs so he didn't go cold turkey on oh, set. Shit. And that after shooting would finish at the end of the day, he'd be, quote, in the emergency room, hooked up to an IV, 
begging doctors for a different prescription and then going back to work again the next day. This kid's fucked. This is terrible. In 1992, he's 20 years old. Yeah. His business manager scammed him out of basically all of his earnings. Oh, no. Then in 92, and he's still only 20 at this point, he had to go back and live with his mum, Judy Haim. Then in 94, when no movies were coming, the roles were not happening for him, he decided he wanted a pop career. So he went to Mannheim in Germany to record a Euro House album, <laughs> make some funky German music. And of course... <laughs> That career did not happen oh. and he went back to doing Z-list movies that, again, went straight to Betamax. That's a shame. Yeah. The drug habit got worse and he actually got sued and nearly went bankrupt. Not that he had any money um, because he pulled out of doing a film called Paradise Bar in 96. And at this point, no one in Hollywood would touch him and his roles dried up. There were a few shit films coming, but he was on his ass. No. Then... In 2001, after being in and out of rehab more than 15 times, and he's 29 at this point, E! Exclamation mark. True Hollywood story. Oh. Did an episode on him. I thought you were saying he discovered ecstasy. Oh, no, I'm sure he's like long gone into that. <laughs> Already there. Well, no, E! Hollywood, true story. They were the ones that would just go and do these little expose episodes. Yes. Well, it basically showed him living in some shit apartment above a garage in Santa Monica with his mom looking drug fucked and out of it. No. He had no money. And actually, Corey Feldman spoke on the episode about trying to help his mate kick the drugs. And after the show aired, the two Corys apparently then went and spent four days at the Neverland Ranch with Michael Jackson. That's right, because Feldman was actually quite close to Michael Jackson and they almost looked alike. They were dressing the same with the gloves and the hats and whatnot. Yes, exactly. Pin that idea. Now, a little side note here, because we were in the early 2000s at the moment. Yeah. In 2004, there was an Irish band called The Thrills. Do you remember them? No. Oh, I fucking loved that band. They were one of my favorite bands. Gorgeous Irish boys. They had an album called Let's Bottle Bohemia. They had a song called Whatever Happened to Corey Haim, which did quite well for them. And the reason I'm even bringing this up is because we went on tour with them back in the day. Oh, my God. I absolutely loved it. This song did quite well for them. I'll link it up in the show notes. I think the song did well for this band because the Corys had a place in the hearts of all of those kids who loved Corey Haim in the 80s and saw those 80s movies. You know, in 2006, Corey Haim was ranked number eight on VH1's list of the greatest teen stars ever. So, you know, I think there was still a lot of love for the Corys. So it's really sad that that shit didn't work out for him. And in December 2006, in a desperate move to still be relevant, the two Corys got back together and began taping a reality show called The, the Two, two Corys. Of course. <laughs> it saw Corey Haim going to live in Corey Feldman's house with him and his wife while trying to get his career back on track. Okay. But Geordie, surprise, surprise, it did not go well. Not least because... He kind of looked like an unrecognizable, bloated, drug fucked version of himself because oh dear. 
He was an unrecognisable, bloated, drug-fucked version of himself. The show did not get through the second season before it was canned. Corey Haim was so broke afterwards. Because, you know, he also got kicked out of Corey Feldman's house. He had nowhere to live. He was on his ass. Oh, they fell out, did they? Oh, yeah. Big time. And he had no money. And he started selling clumps of his hair. What? And one of his molar teeth on eBay. No. Yep. And apparently the auction for the tooth, and I don't think it was a twin tooth, got up to 150 bucks before eBay shut that shit down because oh. you are not allowed to sell body parts. No, of course not. It's Fucking, disgusting. I know. It's dark. But, Geordie. The darkest moment of the series, the two Corys, came when Corey Haim told Corey Feldman on camera that he had been sexually abused when he was 11 by someone they both knew, but they wouldn't say who it was. Only saying that in 2007, the guy was now 42. He also said the abuse had continued for two years and that Corey Feldman knew about it at the time. Really? Yeah. Thing is, on their reality show the two Corys, they both said that they had been molested when they were starting out in Hollywood, with Corey Feldman saying, that was one of those things that we discussed not bringing up, and then Corey brought it up anyway. Right. They didn't want to bring it up on the show. No. Now, look, one of the most awful things I read when I was doing the research for this episode was a quote from actress Alison Arngrim. She was the girl, the blonde girl, who played the rich bitch Nellie in Little House on the Prairie. Oh, yes. She said in the media in 2011 that people knew this was going on. And she said, quote, people would say, oh, yeah, the Corys, everyone's had them. Oh, my God. And she said, I literally heard that they were passed around. Oh, The word was that they were being given drugs and then being used for sex. Oh, this is horrific. Absolutely fucking terrible. She also was an abused child star. Who by? What, the people in the industry? Yeah. Well, why isn't there a Me Too for this lot? The children? This is so disgusting. Well, look, Corey Feldman has come out saying that there is this huge, very well-known, very well-protected pedophile ring in Hollywood. Oh, my God. So, look, after Corey Haim had been living with Corey Feldman and his now ex-wife, Susie, Corey Haim had nowhere to live. He's back in with his mum, selling his teeth on eBay. His mum had breast cancer at the time. And everything about that sentence is so depressing. And then on March 10, 2010, Judy Haim makes a 911 call that you can find this 911 call all over the internet. It's, It's out there. At the age of 38, Corey Haim died in his mother's home. Now, initially, the LAPD said he died from an accidental overdose. And this was because they found shitloads of bottles of Valium, Vicodin, Soma, which is apparently a muscle relaxant, and some antipsychotic drug. And look, in the month before he died, Corey Haim had been doctor shopping using fake names to get 553 prescription pills for Valium, Vicodin, Xanax, Soma. And it was later ruled, actually, that his death was not due to an accidental overdose, but pneumonia, which I think sounds really fucking sus. I find it really sad. I mean, here we are on a podcast talking about it, sure. But I find it so sad that this poor chap has had his entire life, his mental health struggles, his 
substance abuse struggles and his death all out there. You can live along with him. You can listen to the 911 call. You can, oh my God, you can watch his, his friendship falls apart on his reality show. I find it so upsetting. But this is the life of child stars. You know, they, in some ways, probably weren't even given a choice. I mean, Corey Feldman has come out and said, I was working since the age of two. I never chose Ugh, that. And yeah. they don't. And then they don't know anything else. They get used to the media attention. They get used to the money. But they're not mentally equipped to handle this. Kids have small brains. So I think it's really difficult. And then if you're abused as well, you don't know how to handle that stuff. And that sends you down into a life of substance abuse to forget. You know, who knows? I don't know. I'm making assumptions here. But, you know, speaking about the abuse that Corey Feldman has come out and Corey Haim has said, Corey Feldman said in the media, and these are not my opinions, so I'm only saying what is out there. I'm not making judgment. I'm just relaying this information. Don't sue us. <laughs> that Corey Feldman did say in the media that, quote, a Hollywood mogul was the one who had abused Corey Haim and that during the filming of Lucas, Corey Haim, quote, and trigger warning here because this is fucking intense. He said that Corey Haim, quote, had been tricked into engaging in a painful session of anal sex by a man on the movie set. The man told Haim that sex between men and boys was normal in Hollywood. Later, it came out that allegedly this man was Charlie Sheen, who was 19 years old when Corey was 11 and they both starred in that film, Lucas. Of course, Charlie Sheen has denied this vehemently. I'm not saying one way or another. I'm just saying what's out there on the internet. Now, Corey Haim's mum has come out saying it's bullshit. It's not Charlie Sheen. It's just Corey Feldman trying to sell books off the back of Corey Haim's right. pain. Wow. In 2017, she did an interview on the Dr. Oz show where she said it wasn't Charlie Sheen who abused her son. It was a guy called Dominic Brasher who hmm. died in 2018. And she said he was the one that sexually abused Corey. But also she was kind of oh weird about it, Geordie, because she said this guy, Dominic Brasher, was like 30 years old at the time and he moved next door to them. Oh, God. And one day when Corey was 13, Corey Haim calls his mum and is like, Mum, please come and get me. This guy, Dominic, won't get off from on top of me. This guy, Dominic Brasher, was kind of abusing him. And then the mum says, mm. listen, it wasn't rape. It was just kind of fondling and stuff. Oh, my God. And this, Geordie, is why this woman is on my shit list. Because, yep. no, son, you weren't raped. You were just molested. But yep. it's fine. It's okay. It's the lesser of the two. No, that's not okay. What's her name again? Judy. Judy, no. It's not okay, Judy. But look, then in March 2020, Corey Feldman made a documentary called My Truth, The Rape of Two Corys. Oh, wow. Where he says Charlie Sheen raped Corey Haim. And he described the scene in graphic detail. These claims were backed up by a guy called Jameson Newlander, who was Corey's friend and co-star in The Lost Boys. Yeah. Also, Corey Feldman's ex-wife, Susie, said Corey Haim had spoken to her about the abuse. And Corey Feldman also said that Dominic Brescia did sexually abuse Corey Haim. Oh, so look, God. I don't know what the truth is. 
I'll never know. But what I will say, and it goes back to what we just were discussing, going from the biggest child star of the 80s to selling your tooth on eBay, it's pretty shocking. And maybe the sexual abuse was the trigger here that started off the drug taking and led him to just being a shell of himself. Who knows? Yeah. I will say a little bit like what you said on the back of the whole Harvey Weinstein Me Too thing. In 2019, Corey Feldman did speak to Rolling Stone and said there was this well-known pedophile ring. Let's bust it wide open. Come on. Well, he was trying to. And this is a quote from the article. He said, right off the bat, I can name six names. One of them who is still very powerful today. And it's a studio that links all the way up to studios and connects pedophilia to one of the major studios. Oh, God. And then he said of his friend, and this is a quote, Nobody knows what it feels like to constantly console somebody whose life has been ruined by rape unless you've Mm. been there. Holding them when they cry, bringing them back to life over and over, stopping them from walking around with a knife. I didn't ask for this. I didn't ask to tell his story. I didn't ask for any of it. That's the the tragic story of Corey Haim. Oh, my God. Do you know, I knew this stuff because we in the past have done stories on Taylor or Tyler, what's his name? The little Hollywood medium, Tyler. Yes, what's his last uh, name? We've done a few stories on him, and I can't remember his name. Tyler. Yeah, I know who you mean. Tyler, the the medium guy who spoke to Janet Jackson. Well, spoke to Michael Jackson. For he Janet. did a special with Corey Feldman, and a lot of this really? stuff came out. Yep. All the details kind of came out afterwards. He didn't say it on the Tyler show, but mm. yeah, it's horrifying, Michelle. R.I.P. Corey Haim. We loved you in the Lost Boys. How real is real life? Not as real as you. Go and get real. Get real. It's an eavesdropping, cheating, chatty time. So talking about all this horror and darkness to do with the films that we've all enjoyed and we love and we love to watch, it's quite shocking to know where, you know, the seamy underside almost of what's going on behind the scenes and in dark corners of rooms and studios. But I'd like to talk about my early teens and the films that we did touch on earlier, Pretty in Pink, Breakfast Club you mentioned, The Outsiders was just mentioned. I'm really desperate to see that again. I adored the book. I read it front to back so many times. That was Matt Dillon, right, as well? Matt Dillon, C. Thomas Howell, Patrick Swayze, Rob Lowe, um, Tom Cruise. Classic 80s cast. Ralph Macchio. They were all in it. Basically, that group of actors were known as the Brat Pack. And this was a term coined by New York journalist David Bloom in 1985. And it centred around the stars Emilio Estevez, who's Charlie Sheen's brother, and he was in The Outsiders as well. Anthony Michael Hall, who was in Sixteen Candles and some other things. Weird science, wasn't he in that one? Weird science. Rob Lowe, Andrew McCarthy, Demi Moore, Judd Nelson, Molly Ringwald and Ali Sheedy. They were the main players. But occasionally you'd get satellite brat packers lumped in, such as who you just mentioned before, Charlie Sheen, James Spader, Patrick Swayze, Robert Downey Jr., also mentioned in your story. But they didn't share screen time as often as the core Brat Packers. Normally, a Brat Pack member has either starred in John Hughes's The Breakfast Club or Joel Schumacher's St. Elmo's Fire, both released in 1985. And it's funny because they play kind of uni students in St. Elmo's and and like teenage high school students in Breakfast Club. And it's made the same year. 
that's range. But Demi <laughs> Moore, who was one of the group's most successful stars, and Emilio Estevez were going out together. He's son of Martin Sheen, as is Charlie Sheen, his brother. They were in their relationship for about three years. And at the time, Ali Sheedy was the one that was pipped as the group's shining star. She then, when uh, Estevez and Demi Moore's relationship broke up and Demi Moore started dating Bruce Willis, Ali Sheedy was their bridesmaid in 1991. But she realised she didn't fit into Demi's world anymore because it was all too glamorous and too fancy, I think. Yeah. And she wasn't really chuffed about Moore's newfound status as a sex symbol either, particularly after the film Striptease, because Ali Sheedy had been struggling with bulimia due to the pressure put on her to look a certain way as a young star. Right. But then she became addicted to uh, sleeping pills and it was actually Demi Moore who staged an intervention in 1989 and helped Ali get off them. Haven't seen her in many things since then, actually. Probably for her mental health, she was like, I can't be a Hollywood actress anymore. I mean, when you think about Jamie Gertz, we did talk about her briefly. She was in Less Than Zero, which was a big film as well and then she just stepped out of the limelight and I did look her up part of the reason you can do that if you're Jamie Gertz is because she's married to like the second wealthiest man in America or something other scandal in 1988 Rob Lowe filmed himself having sex with a 16 year old girl and the tape became public at the time or even before it he was actually dating Little House on the Prairie's Melissa Gilbert so I think that was the end of that relationship Mm. and also it wasn't illegal for him to have sex with the girl because the age of consent in Georgia where it happened was 14 at the time but did destroy his reputation for a while because obviously filming it is not legal and back then no one was filming you didn't have a camera on your phone that required some setup it was the death knell for his career but he came back because we've seen him recently because he's now a sexy older man with a past i mean he's aged nicely he looks good yeah anthony michael hall he was the youngest of the crew of that crew at 16 he struggled with alcoholism as a teenager it is said that he was an arrogant young star who'd often get into public fights and then spent a year on saturday night live age 17 which impacted him negatively as well Hmm. Looking back in an interview with The Independent in 2021 regarding his sudden rise to fame and the effect it had on him as a teenager, he said, Fame was off-putting and kind of scary. When celebrity hits you all of a sudden, people are staring at you and looking at you in odd ways. Even though I was just a pubescent teenager, suddenly I was thrown into this world of show business. Mm. And he said that he was drinking a quart of vodka every day at just 17. Just to get through the day. These poor kids, you know. You think they have everything, but they're fucked. But many years before the Brat Pack owned Hollywood for a time, Italian director Lucino Visconti released his 1971 film, Death in Venice, starring Dirk Bogard as the composer Gustav von Aschenbach, who travels to Venice for some well-needed R&R. Mm-hmm. I've not seen this film, but I have heard a lot about it. And in fact, this story was suggested by listener Safka. Thank you, Safka, for bringing it onto my radar. While on the break, this composer, he spots this beautiful boy in a sailor suit called Tadzio and becomes enamoured. And the actor playing Tadzio was a 14-year-old Swedish guy Ooh. called Björn Andresen, who suddenly became a star and an icon thanks to his ethereal beauty and the lascivious nature of the film. Gay icon or? Well, yeah, for sure. 
and girls. Girls loved him, guys loved him. Mm. He was beautiful. Still is quite attractive, I find. In an interview with The Guardian, with interviewer Ryan Gilby, he's described now as looking more like Gandalf at age 66 with a long white beard and long white (laughs) hair. Film historian Lawrence J. Quirk said that some of the shots from Death in Venice could be taken out of the frame and hung in the Louvre or the Vatican. They were so beautiful and him like a Botticelli angel. He didn't say that, I just said that. (laughs) Beyond says himself that he felt the film had screwed up his life quite decently. Right. Because how old was he again? He was 14, 15, I think. 15, 14 Mm. at the time. He says, when I watch it now, I see how that son of a bitch sexualized me. Visconti. Was it Visconti? Visconti, yeah. When the film came out, the rumours in the United States were that Andresen was gay because in the film he had to exchange romantic glances with Dirk Bogard and on another occasion he had to be kissed and caressed by another teenage boy. Awkward. Yeah. But Andresen denies this. According to Andresen, he says that the director Visconti said he didn't give a fuck about his feelings and he goes on to say... I've never seen so many fascists and assholes as there are in film and theatre, which can probably echo your story there, Michelle. He says that Visconti was a sort of cultural predator who would sacrifice anything or anyone for the work. Not great when you're dealing with children. No, not really. Now, despite being an accomplished pianist, no one really cares about that side of Bjorn Andresen because he says, everything I ever do will be associated with that film. I mean, we're still sitting here talking about it 50 years later. He says, yeah. and I echo that because obviously that's what we're doing. There's a documentary that came out about him. It's called The Most Beautiful Boy in the World. And that's why he was being interviewed in this Guardian interview. And in the documentary, you can see his audition for the film where he's all angelic but intimidated at the same time, especially when Visconti starts demanding things like smile, walk around the room, take off your top. And in the footage, you can see the poor boy thinking that he's misheard it and kind of laughing nervously. He's eventually standing, being filmed in his underwear, awkwardly wriggling as Visconti and his assistants are just checking him out. Oh, God. This sounds like the beginning of that film that you had recommended the other week. Triangle of Sadness. Did you see it? I couldn't get through it, but I got about halfway through it. And that beginning is hilarious. So Bjorn Andresen was in the care of his grandmother after the death of his single mother four years earlier. Sadly, she took her own life. And as soon as he could walk, his grandma was sending him to auditions because she wanted a celebrity for a grandson, he says. Oh, Jesus. That's not good. I thought granny would have a bit more care for the kid. Well, who knows what people's lives are like he'd already appeared in roy anderson's 1970 debut a swedish love story and he is a very famous art house swedish director you may have heard of him or your partner may have heard of him and you may even know one of his films which is called a pigeon sat on a branch reflecting on his existence no i don't but it sounds exciting i'll have to ask (laughs) andreas when the death in venice park came up he originally thought it sounded like a cool summer job but it turned out to be very lonely because Visconti wanted the crew to keep away from him, keep their hands off the boy, keep him pristine. But at the end of every shoot, Visconti would drag him off to gay clubs after filming. What? No. Oh, my God. This is fucked. In Dirk Bogard's memoir in 1983, An Orderly Man, he said of 
Bjorn, he had an almost mystic beauty, and in order to maintain his purity, the director had imposed certain rules on him. He was never allowed to go into the sun, kick a football about with his companions, swim in the polluted sea, or do anything which might have given him the smallest degree of pleasure, and he suffered it all splendidly. Wow, so he just took it on the chin. Is Dirk Bogard still alive? No. No, okay. At the film's London premiere, young Andresen met the Queen and Princess Anne. Then at Cannes Film Festival, he was mobbed, which he describes as being swarmed by bats, and he didn't like that very much at all. Mm. The directors of the documentary, Beautiful Boy in the World, uh, Christina Lindstrom and Christian Petrie, said that the footage from the Cannes press conference revealed some underlying ickiness. They said the press conference contained journalists who were laughing along with Visconti as he joked about Andresen losing his looks (gasps) and the documentary director said there was no compassion or empathy he had the feeling of being used and he was packaged as an object yeah that's not nice is it this guy sounds like a complete dick he's on the shit list too yeah in 2003 Jermaine Greer the feminist writer Australian feminist writer released a book called The Beautiful Boy and without his permission which he was really annoyed about she used his image on the front cover but actually she got permission from david bailey who took the picture right okay the book was all about the youthful male face and form from history to the present day from paintings drawings and photographs and it had inside the book people such as elvis boy george kurt cobain jim morrison cupid and the whole thing was a subject of controversy because of the cover photo and the topic matter which some felt was pedophilic oh look i think it's hard to discuss these things without people making those connections because when you talk about young boys being beautiful all of that stuff you know just goes hand in hand so poor old Bjorn himself said he struggled at school in the wake of the film's release and he'd often be taunted by other kids saying things like hi there angel lips and he didn't really enjoy the beautiful tag and he himself said when you snap your fingers and you've got 10 chicks running after you there's no need to learn any social skills for dealing with the opposite sex right So he went to Japan for a little while, recorded pop songs, was in ads, loads of hysteria for him out there, Mm. akin to the Beatles' arrival in the US. Wow. And in order to cope with the punishing schedule, he was plied with pills, much (sighs) like your Corey's. Yeah. Then there was a regrettable period for him in his 20s when he was in Paris on the promise of an acting job and he was put up in a hotel at the behest of an old man. He'd be showered with gifts, dinners from male admirers, and one composed love poems in his honour. And in the documentary, they didn't go in too deep about his Paris years. He didn't want it really go there because mm. he says out of his entire life, that was his regretful time. Yeah, that's his low point. He felt as if he had an overdose of fame 50 years before, but he was happy for the documentary makers to follow him around for six years in order what? to make this film. Fuck. And they felt it was because he wanted to take back some of the power and control he felt he was lacking as the teen. He now lives in Stockholm, has a daughter that was born in 1984 to his ex-wife, who was a poet called Susanna Roman. They did have another child who tragically died of sudden infant death syndrome at nine months of age. And then he suffered a lengthy bout of depression in the wake of his son's death. Mm -hmm. He's now grandfather to two and still acting despite being reluctant. He was in Midsummer. Did you see that? I haven't seen it. No, it's on our radar. No, you don't need to see it. He's one of the elderly people who, I won't say what happens, but he's one of the elderly people in it. Okay. 
and he's also been in Valanda and Yordscott as well, which was mm-hmm. a weird kind of supernatural detective series that I did watch. Very odd. That was out in 2015. And to me, he is similar in looks to mm. Leif Garrett. Remember him? He was oh, around in the 70s. Okay. Teen sensation. He started acting also at age five. And then in the 70s, he became a pinup yep. after the film Skateboard. And then he had a pop career doing surfer covers like The Wanderer and Runaround Sue. He's all golden haired and topless. I was made for dancing. Ha, ha. Oh, all night long. Do you remember that song? That was I his? do, but I can't remember the words. I was made for dancing. He's also in The Outsiders, which I've mentioned about yeah. five times now. And he started using drugs when he was 14. Well, I won't go into it because that's a story for another time. Basically, Michelle, I think this episode has taught us that it may not always work out for child actors and child stars. Even poor old Nelly from Little House on the Prairie. That was shocking when you said that. And I looked back at some to see if there were any success stories. Well, obviously, they're successful now, but what did they have to go through to get there? But you've got Jodie Foster, who seems quite well adjusted. Kurt Russell, also. Mm -hmm. Jason Bateman. uh, Ron Howard. But then there are a few that didn't turn out okay. So maybe... Christian Bale. I mean, he seems okay, but in 2008, he was filming an intense scene in New Mexico for the film Terminator Salvation in a scene with the actor Bryce Dallas Howard, who is the daughter of Ron Howard. The film's director of photography accidentally walked into Bale's eyeline while they were filming. He lost his shit. Wow. And screamed and ranted for a really long time. And even though this poor guy was being really calm, he was screaming, saying he wouldn't work with him again. You're a nice guy, but... And then he'd rip into him again. It was awful. And you can hear it on YouTube. Oh, no. Or you can hear a song version called Are You Professional, which came out in 2009 <laughs> by the American indie band The May She. Is it one of those mashups where they take it and it's like, are you professional? No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. Adam Buxton has also turned it into a jingle on his podcast as well. So I've wow. sent you some links that you can link up if you're interested. The sad life of a child star. I tell you, it's not always easy breezy, easy street, is it? No. And I think that obviously on the surface, it looks like they've got it all. They've got the fame. They've got the looks. They've got the money. They've got the career. But mentally, they're... They're kids. Yeah. I just don't think their brains have developed enough for them to be able to handle the pressure. They need their parent or guardian to be really well adjusted and in it for the right reasons. Yes. Parents are fuck ups as well. So, I mean, we've seen it time and time again. You know, Britney Spears, we did an episode on her. Her dad and mum did not have her best interests at heart. And, you know, we've seen... Obviously, the Corys today, just so many child actors are fucked. Yeah. And like Corey Feldman kept saying, I didn't ask for this. No, he didn't. And, you know, word of warning, I guess. It seems how wonderful to like put your kids into commercials yeah. or get them to be in into acting. But is it really worth it in the end? Yeah. If that's their calling, they'll find it. That's right. Don't steal their mm. childhood just for a quick buck and a bit of fame. Yeah. Wonderful story. I'm going to have to look him up just to see if he really is the most beautiful boy in the world. I think he's gorgeous. And Mm. I think he's really lovely as an older man with his long white hair too. And I think that brings us to a a nicely rounded ending 
for our <laughs> weekly foray into the real life world of child actors. It does. And there's only three things left to say, Geordie. And that's wherever you are. Whatever you do. Just, just keep, keep eavesdropping. 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 Eaves